everyone. Um, I'm Eloise, if I haven't met you, and I've been coming to St Nick's for I think over four years now, which is incredible to believe, time flies. Um, but I moved to Bristol um, to work in wildlife documentaries, as Toby mentioned. And, uh, but before that, I um, did a few different things. <laughs> so I did my undergrad in biology, um, and then I went and studied um, back at Oxford at the uh, Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Um, and it's always a weird thing to describe because apologetics is kind of a weird word. But essentially, it comes from the word apologia, which means a formal defence of one's beliefs. Um, so essentially, I spent a year looking at big questions about faith, purpose, meaning. Um, it was an existential crisis <laughs> at times, but it was also just incredibly helpful to have that time away to look at big questions. Um, and then I wanted to go deeper, so I did a theology master's, and um, then I came to Bristol. So um, I just wanted to say that because essentially my story has been a lot about digging into thorny questions um, and trying to work out uh, what I think. <laughs> and so it's such a pleasure to be here and to talk on why I believe in the resurrection today. So uh, as lots of you I'm sure know, this is the last in the series, as Toby mentioned, um, on the creed. Uh, so creed comes from the Latin word credo, um, which means to believe. And so for Christians, uh, it's basically a chance to affirm what we believe. But for those who don't call themselves Christian, um, I find it really helpful because it still has been used for centuries to essentially describe the nuts and bolts of Christian Christianity. Um, and it was used in the early church. It's often called the grassroots creed um, because it uh, rose just organically from the early church. It was used as a teaching and preaching tool amongst the churches. And what I particularly love about the creed is that it brings unity. And I think in the church, it's really easy to look and see that there's a lot of disunity. <laughs> um, but this is essentially um, the unifying core of Christianity. And um, I was very aware of that last weekend because I was in Copenhagen and I went to the international church there. And I think there were over 25 different nations represented and lots of different denominations. But sure enough, halfway through, we all stood up and we said the Apostles' Creed together. So in a city I'd never been to, in a country I'd never visited, I could stand up and say that I believe these quite personal things with a group of strangers. And it felt amazing. I felt very known. So we're going to say it today, if you're comfortable. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Oh my goodness, I'm on the screen. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that didn't happen this morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, if we could say the words together. So, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Um, 
when I uh, first had this talk to Aaron, his, his main comment was that this is one for the note takers. So if anyone has a notebook, <laughs> it's time. Um, but just to go through what we're looking at, we're going to look at the final section of the creed, um, which focuses on our future resurrection and eternal life. And there are a few different things that I'd like to explore. So first is, what does it mean to believe? Second is, what kind of evidence can we expect when we're making decisions about questions of faith, purpose, and meaning? Third is, how the creeds enrich our life and faith. And fourth is, what can we learn about our resurrection and future, and how can that impact our lives now? So no small thing. <laughs> so first to start with, what does it mean to believe something? One of the ways that I find quite helpful to think about this is to think about the word faith or belief. And so in the, Old, um, in the New Testament, the ancient Greek word is pistis, which I'm pretty sure someone will laugh at at some point. Um, but basically, pistis can be defined in a few different ways. Um, but I find two kind of themes in that quite helpful to think about when I think about belief. So first is it can be defined as the conviction that something is true. And I find that helpful because I think it sums up that we have to really understand something with our minds and think that it's true to believe it. And then a second way that it can be defined is trust or confidence in something or someone. I think that's helpful because it touches on the fact that believing something or in someone often engages our hearts as well. We need to trust it or them. So why am I saying this at the start? Well, I think it's helpful to think about why we would believe anything to be able to grapple with a question as big as our future resurrection. So when we talk about believing something, I think it can sometimes be quite tempting to think that we can choose whether we have any beliefs at all, or whether we just see the hard facts of reality and live by those. I want to start with a little bit of my story, which is I went through a period in my life where I just didn't want to believe in anything that I couldn't like, take apart and put back together from basic principles. I wanted to prove everything I lived my life by, and for everyone to know that I was fully justified in what I believed. And it turns out I wasn't unique in that journey. Um, just pointing to my uh, younger self, the French philosopher René Descartes got there before me, quite a few years before me, <laughs> um, with a handier catchphrase than anything I could come up with, which is, I think, therefore I am. And you might have heard that before. But essentially it means I'm a being who's aware of my own existence. And it turns out that if you strip everything back to what we can prove or be completely sure of and follow that path to its logical conclusion, we end up being able to say very little about the world around us and about ourselves. All you can really prove is that you are a being who is aware of your own existence. And this caused me some problems. One was that we tend to want to say a little bit more about the world and life um, and how we should live it, for no other reason perhaps um, that, than that we're agents in this world. So we constantly have choices about what we should do. And it's impossible not to act in some way and live by some form of principles. Even doing nothing is choosing a path. But more than that, we seek meaning in our lives. I wanted to know why I was here and what I should commit my time and money to. What was the point of anything? I could have a good time with people I cared about. I could eat lots of tasty brunches, particularly in Bristol. Um, I could try new fun things and I could work to be as successful as I possibly could. But what was it all for? So I had sought some comfort in science, as I said, I, I studied it for a while, but I didn't find answers there about what the point of everything was. 
I found really helpful ways of understanding the world around me, but not how I should act. And the problem I was finding is that the most important questions and answers um, can often feel the murkiest and the hardest to pin down. But once I'd come to terms with this, I realized I had to make some judgment calls on what I was going to build my life around, and not everyone was going to agree with me. So how do we make judgments? Well, I think we need to take lots of different kinds of evidence into account to help us build a picture of the world that is hopefully as close to what the world actually is as we can make it. I think there's a reason that people often use a law court um, as an example for this, because you tend to uh, use lots of different types of evidence to build up a picture of what happened. When I first graduated, um, I was put on a jury in the Old Bailey in London, which is where all the big cases go. So <laughs> it was kind of crazy post-uni thing, but um, we uh, essentially were presented with lots of different kinds of evidence. So there were eyewitness accounts, there was CCTV footage, um, there was more technical evidence, like gunshot residue. Didn't know that was a thing. Was a thing. Um, there was the history and character of the defendant and whether there were any previous offences. And it was all presented to us in this big melee, and then we had to leave the room and come to our verdict. Okay, so you've all been very patient, um, but why is this relevant to the creed and our future resurrection? Well, it boils down to the fact that I think all of us live by a creed. They could be religious, they could be secular, uh, we might be aware of them or not. But it's part of human nature to shape our lives around a core set of beliefs about the world and our place within it. It could simply be that there's no rhyme or reason in this world, and we just have to make the best of what we can, of what we have. Or it could be um, that we can understand the world the best through science, and everything else is maybe a bit subjective, and so it's hard to make everyone agree. Or it could be that there are principles and rights that rise above all the different cultures, and we all innately know them. Or it could be the creed that we're discussing today. So moving to the Apostles' Creed, I see the Apostles' Creed, or the creeds in general, as part of what the theologian Anselm summarizes as faith-seeking understanding. What I really love is that we aren't called to leave our minds behind as we follow Jesus. The gospel calls all of who we are and should satisfy our hearts and our minds. It gives us propositional statements to grapple with, but they don't encapsulate all of what the gospel is or who Jesus is. I think Christianity without the creed misses the holistic understanding of the beliefs of the gospels, but the creed without the Christian story loses the full meaning of them. The character of the person at their center and the vision of what life can be in light of it. If we're tempted to spend forever analyzing the creed, we've missed the heart of the story. But if we're lost in the story without a sense of what it truly means, we've missed the clarity that it can bring. A few of the ways the creed can help our faith is, I think, by reminding us of the big picture of the Christian faith as an affirmation of our trust in Jesus and the community that makes us part of, and as a declaration that we are open to there being more to explore and understand about God. So I've drawn some of those from the theologian Alistair McGrath because I love his way of seeing what the creeds can do in our lives. And we're going to circle back to them. But first, I want to look at um, the first part of the creed about why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So obviously, this is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Um, so going back to the kinds of evidence we might hear in a law court, one of my favorite books on this topic is Lee Strobel's book. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. The Case for Christ and the Case for Easter. 
Um, so he was a journalist who covered lots of court cases, and he goes through the evidence for the resurrection in more detail than I can today. Um, so definitely go read it if you're interested in this subject. Uh, but I just wanted to cover some of the basics of it, because I think it boils down essentially to three questions. So first, did Jesus die? Second, what happened to his body? And third, uh, what evidence is there that he was seen alive again? So first of all, did he die? One of the alternative theories for what happened to Jesus is that he just swooned or fainted on the cross and then later revived in the tomb. So what's the likelihood that he survived? Well, we know from historical evidence that Roman crucifixions were notoriously brutal. They weren't designed for people to survive. Some people didn't even make it past the initial beatings um, before the crucifixion itself. And then we also know from the Gospels that the Roman soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and both blood and clear fluid came out, which is something known as per pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. Sorry to the doctors, I probably mispronounced that. Um, but this only happens when someone has died. And so I think both those lines of evidence suggest that Jesus was definitely dead. So second, what happened to his body? Well, there are a few different theories here, but the main, alternatives are, main alternative is that the body was stolen from the tomb. So what's the likelihood that that happened? Well, excavations of the first century site suggest that it's likely the tomb had a large disc-shaped stone rolled down a groove across the entrance. So this would, re would have required multiple people to budget. Um, and the grave was also likely guarded by Roman soldiers, so it's unlikely that the body was stolen. But then we might ask, can we trust the witnesses who said that they found the tomb empty? Well, the Gospels state that the empty tomb was found by women who were friends and followers of Jesus, and so many have argued that maybe they aren't a reliable source. But in first-century Jewish society, women weren't allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. So I think the Gospels um, are recording what actually happened. If it had been fabricated later on, surely they would have um, had a bit more sense and maybe used the disciples as finding the tomb rather than the women. And then third, what evidence is there that he was seen alive again? So Paul writes in two places in 1 Corinthians that he personally encountered the resurrected Christ. He also mentions that Jesus appeared to the disciples and then to 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living. So he essentially sets up lots of witnesses who could corroborate what he was saying. And then the Gospels and the Book of Acts also describe numerous post-resurrection appearances to various disciples over a several-week period before Jesus ascended into heaven. So then another point that I think is relevant here is that I think we can get used to the idea of a religious fanatic dying for a cause. But I think what's interesting is the disciples were alive at the time of the events. And so it would have been, I mean, they would have known if they were true or not. And yet they still chose to die. So in my book, that often counts as, as evidence um, that they did actually see Jesus alive. Um, I think another thing it can be easy to think is that maybe at the time people were predisposed to believe in an afterlife. Um, but obviously now we know better, but maybe back then that's what they expected. So if we quickly run through some of the beliefs of the time, if we look at the Jewish groups, um, there are a few different ones. One I'd never heard of, so congrats if you knew what they were. <laughs> One is the Essenes. Um, so they believed the soul would be released from the body at death. And then, more familiarly, the Pharisees they believed that there would be bodily resurrection for the righteous after Israel had been restored. 
But Israel was still under Roman rule, so they definitely would not have expected um, a bodily resurrection at that stage. And then the Sadducees, they believed the soul perished at death and that there wasn't an afterlife at all. And then if we go wider than the Jewish um, community, in the Greco-Roman world, there was, I mean, a diverse range of opinions on the afterlife. But the only real consensus was that death is a one-way street. So Jesus' immediate bodily resurrection would have been as shocking in the first century as it would be today. So if Jesus died and rose again, what does it mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus is the Messiah he claimed to be and that he brings forgiveness to those who confess and trust in him. And it also shows death has no hold over him. And so it won't have um, a hold over those that trust in him. And that leads to the next point, um, which is the penultimate line of the creed, which talks about the resurrection of believers. So this is covered in our reading for today, which Aaron is going to come up and read. Whoop! <laughs> means I can drink my water. Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we, have, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he is raised, that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then those then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until his, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thank you very much. I just didn't want to have to say that. <laughs> it's a difficult passage, people. <laughs> Um, okay, so the reading is from this passage because it's such a good one for exploring this topic. Because the Corinthian church, they weren't disputing Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of believers. They believed that we did live forever, but not in resurrected bodies. And Paul's response, as you heard, is pretty abrasive. So he definitely is not honeycoating what he thinks here. Um, but the main point he's trying to put across is that Jesus' resurrection proves not only his own, but the principle of resurrection itself. So he argues that if Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be too. <laughs> and if we argue that we won't be, then we're claiming that Christ wasn't raised. And if he wasn't, then his preaching and their belief was in vain. 
Jesus can't save us and our sins haven't been forgiven. So Paul is basically arguing that the gospel stands and falls on Christ's resurrection. If you just take him as a teacher, then his teachings have no justification. They fall flat. Either he was the Messiah who rose from the dead and we will too, as he said we would, or none of it is true and those who believe are to be pitied. And Paul concludes by describing the end to all dominion, authority, and power. And he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this touches on our current in-between stage. For now, God has allowed a measure of authority and power to be held by men, Satan, and death. But that is just temporary. The resurrection of Jesus has put in motion the final destruction of death. So if we believe in Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection, this leads us to our final point of the creed, which is life everlasting or eternal life. And we can see in passages such as John 3:36 that those who believe in Jesus receive the gift of eternal life. But what will that life look like? I think it's quite easy to see ourselves in the heavenly realm. <laughs> there are clouds, there are harps, I like to think flowing robes. Nice colours. Maybe some golden halos. But the Bible says very little about life after death. The main way it describes this phase of life is that we're just with the Lord. And I think N.T. Wright is the one who says, it doesn't say that much about life after death in the Bible, but it says quite a lot about life after life after death. So he's talking about eternal life there. So if we look at the bookends of the Bible, we can see that it starts in Genesis with God giving humanity a vocation to look after creation and to make it flourish. And then it ends in the book of Revelation with a vision of this coming to pass and going forwards. It's a vision describing the new heavens and the new earth to come. And the penultimate chapter starts with, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this mirrors Genesis 1.1. And the word new in Greek can be translated renewed. So it's talking about a renewing of heaven and earth and the establishment of a great city. It's talking about eternal life and what it will look like. Because the promise of the resurrection of believers and of eternal life is that those who trust in Jesus will rule at his side. Paul writes in 2 Timothy that if we endure, we will also reign with him. And that rule means taking our part in making creation flourish. Something that I love with my job. <laughs> so I think there are a couple of important aspects to eternal life, um, just to quickly unpack. So first, that Jesus' resurrection is the first event of the new creation. So it's the beginning of the inevitable end where God renews the heavens and the earth. And the resurrection of all believers to reign with him. I think that means that believers can experience the glimmerings of our eternal life in Jesus now by acts of new creation. And what do I mean by that? I think the theologian, again, N.T. Wright, writes a lot, so <laughs> um, describes this really well. Um, he talks of Christians as being resurrection people. And resurrection people act as both signs and agents of the new life which will flood the earth when Jesus returns. Signs in that we point the way to this truth, and agents because we, bring, we can bring the new creation now through how we act. And he suggests two particular ways that we can do that. So the first are acts of creation. 
So we're called to foster beauty in this world in whatever way we can. And I can see how this relates to my work because we're always trying to capture the most stunning images that we possibly can <laughs> to describe the beauty of the natural world and whatever behavior or point we're trying to illustrate. And then at the same time, we're spending hours <laughs> grafting the stories within the episodes and the commentary to find the best possible way of conveying inspiration and ideas. And the same holds for the ideas and pursuits I have outside of work. And something I think I've learned in this area is that it can be tempting to cut corners in the things unseen. Um, but the things that honor God are not just what you do, but the way you do it. So lots of people think the ends justify the means, but I don't think that's what our stewardship mandate is. I think it's to value everything and everyone. So I always just try to remember that God is after the heart. And with that in mind, the means matter just as much, if not more, than the ends. So this leads into the second way, which is acts of justice. So we're called to anticipate when God will put all things right and wipe away every tear by working to root out injustice. And again, I find that it's easy to be shaped by the culture of the place you're in. And there's often a tension at work. So in my industry, at least, there's a pressure to look good as an individual. But I think we're called to raise others up about um, others above ourselves. And that's the challenge. <laughs> and then one way this manifests itself is that, as with many jobs, um, in my line of work, there's always a pressure to save money. <laughs> um, so I've worked for several companies over the last few years. I've been very lucky. Um, but at one point, I spent six months where my role was essentially to find and license footage from people. And then obviously at work, I'd be um, rewarded the cheaper the footage was that I got. But I know how important it is to content creators, especially in the arts, to get fairly paid for their work. So this basically meant I had to really prepare myself to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. And these are just a few of the things that I can immediately think of when I think of acts of creativity, acts of justice in my life specifically. How am I orienting myself? But I wonder what those acts of new creation might look like in your life, in your context. Then the second point to dwell on is that we do, what we do now has an eternal significance, and I really believe that. What we do now, what we choose to do now shapes us and who we become is who we will be as we enter our eternal life in the new creation. There is more continuity between this age and the age to come than perhaps we think. So if we circle back to those ways of engaging with the creed that I mentioned earlier, the first one is that it helps us catch the vision of the Christian story. So what's the vision? Well, the answer is always Jesus in church. No, the vision is Jesus. Um, and what I find so compelling about the Christian faith is that truth and a person, they go hand in hand. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he escapes all the neat boundaries we draw around him and his words. Or all the boundaries I've tried, tried to draw around him anyway. Um, and then the second thing is it unites us with the Christian community and reminds us of our trust in the person of Jesus. So we've covered some of the reasons why we might trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. I've also found that the Christian story best explains what I see in myself, um, in humanity in general and the world around me. But more than that, his life answers something in me that nothing else has. He satisfies the definitions of pistis that we described earlier. 
Okay. Third, it's a declaration that we open that we're open to understanding more of God. And I love this sentiment because no matter the frameworks we put on the world to try and understand it, reality is always more expansive than we can capture or understand or even put in words. If I asked you to describe your best friend or your partner or your family, a family member to me, um, you could list all you could think of, but it would never be the same as me meeting them. Because ultimately, we're more than a list of facts. We're more than the words that can describe us. God is so much more than the many names that we can give him and the many characteristics we describe, all the acts that we say he's done. Because God is God. And there is always more of him to know and more of life to journey with him until the heavens and the earth are renewed. So bring this into land. You've all been very patient. We've looked at the creed and some of the evidence for it. We've seen that it's a summary of the bigger picture that can inspire us in how we live now. And it's a story that inspires me to live with hope because I believe that we can carry out acts of new creation in the world today. We can follow our original vocation as faithful stewards. We can love our neighbor. We can be kind. We can create beautiful things and we can fight for justice. We're resurrection people after all. And that holds a power that defies a spirit of hopelessness. So I'm just going to finish on a short prayer. Lord, thank you for dying so that I can live and reign with you in new creation. Please help me to see more of who you are today and to be inspired by your message of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.